Welcome to the Christ Community Church Podcast. We hope you enjoy this week's message, that it draws you closer to Jesus and helps you become more like Him. What should we say then? Should we continue in sin so that grace may multiply? Absolutely not. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Or are you unaware that all that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death. Therefore, we were buried with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by glory, by the glory of the Father, so we too may walk in the newness of life. For if we have been united with him in the likeness of his death, we will certainly also be in the likeness of his resurrection. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be rendered powerless so that we may no longer be enslaved to sin. Since a person who has died is freed from sin. Now if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him because we know that Christ having been raised from the dead will not die again. Death no longer rules over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once and once for all time. But the life he lives, he lives, lives to God. So you too consider yourselves dead in sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its desires and do not offer any parts of it to, any parts of it to sin as a weapon of unrighteousness, for unrighteousness. But as those who are alive from the dead, offer yourselves to God and all the parts of yourself to God as weapons for righteousness. For sin will not rule over you because you are not under the law, but under grace. The word of the Lord. Thank you, Terry. All right. You ever felt used by anybody? <laughs> I heard it go, yeah. Um, not alone there. You ever felt like someone just took you for granted, or took your goodness for granted, took your kindness for granted? I mean, we, we've all been there. We've all been there. Um, we've all been in the place where we, uh, where we are either the perpetrators or there's someone in our life who is just abusing our good grace, abusing our kindness. Um, and oftentimes the fact is that that's how we treat our God. That's how we treat our Father in heaven. Last week we looked at the restoration of Peter, the Apostle Peter who was a follower of Jesus, one of the, the lead followers of Jesus, uh, had denied Jesus right before Jesus was crucified. He had denied Jesus on the night of Jesus' trial. Jesus, Peter had publicly said I don't belong with him. I don't follow him. Three times he did this. And if you, if you know your, your Bible, if you know your, your ancient literature, right, a, three, a thrice denial, a three times denial is a complete thing. It's, it's, a, it's a done deal. And so the, the significance of Peter denying Jesus three times is that in all the courts of the land, right, this is a firm denial of Jesus. And yet we see Jesus in his resurrection Come to Peter and fully restore Peter 
asking him three times, do you love me? And Peter always responds, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And then we see Jesus offer to Peter what in the moment was really the kindest thing Jesus could have said to Peter, which was, follow me. To give him the same invitation that he gave Peter at the beginning when Jesus first called Peter and said to Peter, follow me. This is a full restoration to relationship with Jesus. This is lavish grace. This is lavish mercy. When everything about our world would say Jesus should have cut him loose right then. When everything about our world would have said, Peter, you're a two-faced, no good, traitorous son of a gun. You don't deserve Jesus. Jesus comes and says, no, Peter, you are still mine. You have not fallen from my love. You are welcome in my family. And it was such a beautiful picture of the restoration and the, the attitude and the posture that our God has towards us when we fail. Now, here's the problem with that. Right? The problem with God's great grace, the problem with God's lavish mercy is that we are human beings who are prone to abuse it. And so the question we have is, if God's mercy is so great, if God's grace is so great that Peter could go so far as to fully deny belonging to Jesus at all, and yet Jesus would take the initiative to come to Peter and forgive him and restore him, why should we care about our sin whatsoever? That's exactly the question that the Apostle Paul asks at the beginning of this chapter. It was the very first, first verse that Terry read. What should we say then? Should we continue in sin so that grace may multiply? Absolutely not. Now, to fully understand what Paul's saying here, you have to go back. Romans is a book that builds and builds and builds and builds and builds. I was studying for this, and I started reading in chapters 8, because I was going to preach on something in chapter 8, and I was like, that doesn't work, i got to go back to 6. So I started reading in 6, and I was like, that doesn't work, i got to go back to 5. And then eventually I just got to the point where I just listened to the first eight chapters of Romans over and over and over again this week, because you really got to start at the beginning to follow the train of thought of what the Apostle Paul is building in this letter. So if you don't know, Romans is a letter. It is a letter to the Christians in Rome, to the church in Rome. Now, when we say church, we don't mean like the one building like this. What we mean is all of the followers of Jesus collected in Rome. They would gather in house churches all over the city, and then Paul would write this letter and send it with a runner, send it with someone who's going back to Rome, who would then go to these little house churches and read the letter in front of the church. So that's what this is. This is a letter. Now, Paul's never been to Rome. And he's never met these Christians, unlike almost all of the other letters that Paul writes, where he's writing to a church that he himself founded, where he trained the elders. In Rome, he didn't have that. He, only, he's, he knows the, the leaders of the church because he's met them out on his missionary journeys as he's been traveling around. But the church in Rome is more organic than that. It's grown up through people who heard the gospel message came back to Rome, and were like, hey, people, you got to know about this Jesus guy, and they built up this church in Rome. So now Paul is writing this letter because there's just a lot of stuff that they need to know that he didn't get to impart to their elders or to their leaders. Lots of stuff he never got to teach to the people who are leading the church. And one of the big things that Paul learns about the church in Rome as he's talking to his connections 
is that there is great division in the church. Because as in all the churches at this time, we have a big Jewish population and a big Gentile, non-Jewish, pagan population. So you got people coming from all kinds of different religious backgrounds who have all kinds of different thoughts about God and about faith and about how to practice it. And they're coming together and you got this clash of cultures in the church. And so in Rome, this is particularly stressed. This is particularly a big deal. So a lot of the book of Romans is about reconciling and bringing these two groups together, the Jews and the Gentiles, into the church to be one and to represent Jesus well in their unity. Because one of the greatest evangelistic tools, one of the greatest witnesses of the early church was its ethnic unity, was its crazy diversity. It was amazing, and it was one of the things that proclaimed the truth about Jesus to the rest of the world, to a people who would separate according to, according to race, according to religion, according to culture. But in the church, you got this crazy ragtag group of people who come together who really do not belong together in any other situation. And that was one of the great witnesses to the truth of Jesus. So if you got the pagan Gentiles and the Jewish people are not getting along and causing disunity, it undermines the witness of the church, which undermines the credibility of the good news of Jesus in the culture. And so you're literally shooting yourself in the foot. You're out there talking about Jesus, and the people are like, yeah, but I, I see you guys fighting in there. I, who wants to, I got enough of that in my own family. I don't need any of that. Right? I got enough drama at home. I don't need drama in the church where I come to worship. I don't need drama in this family you're putting together. And so Paul is addressing largely the, the dissension, the division that exists in here. And the fact that they live in Rome, the capital of the Roman Empire. This is a big deal. It's a big deal that the church is even existing in Rome. And so Paul is doing a lot of things in this letter. That's what I'm really trying to get at. He's doing a lot of things. He's addressing division. He's trying to help them understand the basics of the good news of Jesus and what it means for them. He's trying to promote unity. And he's trying to help them to grow in the good news of Jesus so that they can be a better witness to the community around them. And so far, he's been building this case. Because you see, it's easy in this context and in this time and place for the Jewish followers of Jesus to be like, yeah, Jesus is a Jew. I get him better than you do. I understand this thing better than you, pagan, Gentile person. And to hoard that over them and to hold it over them. And so at the beginning, the Apostle Paul is trying to lay this foundation that we are all sinners before God. Jew and Gentile, slave and free, male and female, no matter who we are, no matter what your social status is, every single human on the planet is a sinner in need of God's grace. That's, that's the beginning chapters of Romans, sets that out. And then he goes on to talk about the relationship of sinners to the law. Why did God give a law to people? What did it mean for Gentiles who didn't have the law? What did it mean for Jewish people who had the law? And basically what he's saying is everybody from the beginning of history, whether you had the Jewish law or not, needs God's grace. That by no means can any human being perform well enough for God to adopt them. God's adoption of human beings happens purely by his love and grace, never by performance. And so he's laying this foundation in this case. And he makes the case in the previous chapters here that 
It is sin in the world that makes God's grace so great. The worse the sin of the world, the greater God's grace looks. The darker the condition of the world, the brighter God's light shines in it. And that's where we come to at the beginning of chapter 6. And so Paul's anticipating an objection here. The objection is someone's listening to this and going, okay, wait a minute. If If sin makes God's grace greater, then shouldn't I just keep sinning? If, if me doing whatever the heck I want and God adopting me in the middle of all that mess makes God look even better, then shouldn't I just keep doing what I want? What's my relationship to sin? Because God's grace will just shine all the greater if I just keep sinning. And that's where Paul's like, no, that is not you. No, wait a minute. He's like me talking to my nine-year-old. Like, how did you hear me say that? I didn't say those words at all. And so that's what Paul's doing here. He's saying, well, should we just continue sinning so that grace will grow and grow and God will look even greater and more merciful and more wonderful and be magnified even more? Yeah, you kind of missed the boat on this one. You kind of missed the point if that's your question. And so Paul goes on. So the first attitude we can have towards sin, if God's mercy is so great, if God's grace is so great toward us, then the first attitude we can have toward our sin is just not to worry about it. Because the more I sin, the greater God looks. The more I sin, the greater God's grace. The darker my life, the brighter God's light. And so it becomes this this great witness to the world that God still loves me regardless of how I behave. And so I'm going to do what I want. That could be our first attitude towards sin. If God's grace is so great, then I might as well just keep on doing what I want, not obeying him, not paying any attention to him, not worrying about the state of my sin, because God's grace will shine greater. And that's exactly what Paul is addressing here. No, that's not it. He basically makes the argument here and in the next chapter that if that's our attitude, we have not understood the good news of Jesus at all. That, in fact, we need to understand that we have been saved from our sin. And we have been given freedom not to continue in our sin, but freedom to live free from our sin, away from it. That we have been given power by the Holy Spirit and freedom in Christ to live for Jesus, to be alive in Him. And so if our attitude is, well, I'm... I'm saved by grace, so I'm not going to worry about my sin, which is an attitude that is all too prevalent, not in the world today, but in the church today, in the church in the U.S., then we've misunderstood the very good news of Jesus, that it has saved us from sin and given us freedom and power to live free from our sin, and that that is our witness The witness of the good news of Jesus in me is not, I keep sinning and God keeps loving, therefore he's amazing. The witness of the good news of Jesus in me is, I couldn't earn anything, God gave it to me, and then he gave me the power to live for him and to obey him. I didn't have to perform to get into his good grace, and then his grace has given me power to live and love as Jesus lived and loved. That's the good news in me. So the first attitude towards him, we can just knock off the list, right? That's, that's not 
a true understanding of the good news of Jesus. We can have a second attitude towards sin, which is, I'm going to try really, 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 really hard not to. If God's grace is so great, and he has freed me from this, and I want to live in gratitude to God, then I'm just going to screw up my effort, and I'm going to work really hard to be holy and perfect all the time. That's what God wants from me. After all, he gave me power to obey him. He gave me freedom to obey him. So shouldn't I just be able to, with my willpower, say no to sin and live for Jesus and be holy and good? That, that's the second attitude we can have towards sin. I could just work really hard. Except that all of the chapters of Romans before this tell us that won't work. That's called legalism. The first attitude, my sin doesn't really matter, is something called antinomianism. Say that five times real fast, right? Antinomianism, that is not the law. Namos is the Greek word for law, anti we know. So antinomianism means no law for me. I do what I want. It's not a big deal. The second attitude where we screw up our effort and we try really hard not to sin is called legalism. And it's a, it's a tacit verbal acceptance of God's grace, but in reality, I'm trying to earn God's love. I'm working really hard to try and earn everything Jesus did for me. And here's the thing. If you have to earn it, it ain't a gift. If you have to earn it, it ain't grace. And so we could try really hard, except that Paul has been clear in, in all his discussion about the Jewish law. What Paul is saying is the law was never meant to be this checklist by which you can decide whether you're in good, God's good grace or not. That was never the intent. The law was given as a mirror to show us how much we are in need of God's grace. And to recognize, I, I'm, I can't perform my way into God's grace. I can't keep the salvation he's given me. It is all an act of grace. From the very beginning, if you have ever entertained the idea that God worked one way in the Old Testament and then he worked a new way in the New Testament, get that out of your head right now. God has always worked by grace. Always. God adopts people before he gives them a standard. God adopts people and makes them his own before they can do anything to be his. In Jesus, God has come to us before we could ever come to him and said, here's the gift of my adoption. Here's the gift of my son for you. Before you could do anything to earn anything, God has always operated by grace. And so previous to this chapter, Paul's been making the argument that, yeah, some people have tried by obeying the law to work their way into God's family, to work their way into God's love, and you cannot do that. It doesn't work. It only leads to self-righteousness. It leads to all of the right critiques that are made of Christians in the world, which is that we are a bunch of bigoted, self-righteous, judgmental jerks. And if you're a legalistic Christian, that's what you will become. Because you will, you'll look at your checklist and go, boom, oh, yep, look there, look there, look there. And you'll start comparing it to other people's checklists. And you'll go, yeah, I, I filled my end of the bargain. You people are falling short. And it leads to this crazy hierarchy where you guys come and assume that because I'm up here and a preacher, my checklist must look amazing, and you're just trying to get to the same level I'm on. 
But as the cliche goes, the ground is level at the foot of the cross. And every single one of us are on the same footing. There's no hierarchy within the kingdom of God. There's no hierarchy within the church where I'm closer to Jesus than you are because I've kept this checklist better than you have. And the only way to maintain the good news of Jesus and the grace that saves us is to let go of legalism and to say, I can't bring my willpower to the table and say I can earn my way into God's love. I can't do it. I need God's grace. I need Jesus all the time. I don't need Jesus any more now than I did before I followed him. I don't need Jesus any less now than I did when I was baptized. I don't need Jesus any less now than I was when I was doing those other things. I love it when, when, when non-Christians or friends of mine or people I know who don't follow Jesus, you know, they'll, they'll be saying something crazy or they'll be doing something or they'll, they'll, be, they'll be talking all, talking weird and, and, and talking about bad stuff they want to do or like, or like whatever, putting somebody down and somebody at the table will be like, you need Jesus. I'm like, yeah, yeah, y'all don't get this, do you? Because like, so do you. So do I. I don't need him in my worst moments. I don't need him in my best moments. I need him in all my moments, which leads to our third attitude towards sin. So instead of my sin just doesn't matter or I got to work really hard to try not to sin, I could just draw near to Jesus. Just get close to Jesus. The closer I am to him, the more I want to be like him. The more that I lean into Jesus, the less sin will reign in my life. And that's what Paul says here. Now, now we're getting into the meat of this particular chapter. We've been talking about the chapters before. Now we're in the meat of chapter 6. So Paul's argument here is that we can't earn our way into God's good grace and that we shouldn't just not worry about our sin. It's important. We are in Christ becoming more like him, and so we want to die to our sin. And he uses here a very interesting metaphor because he doesn't talk about effort. He doesn't talk about standards. He doesn't talk about rules. What he talks about is death and resurrection. He says, as you draw near to Jesus, when you were brought into Jesus, you died with him. That part of you that longed to go your own way, that part of you that, that just wanted to rule your own life, that part of you that rebelled against God, it is dead with Christ. And you have been raised with him. You have been raised to new life. New breath, new power, new freedom. When you were brought into Jesus, you died with him and you have been raised with him. And it is that life in you that makes you like Jesus. It is that new resurrection life inside of you that makes you holy, that draws you into God's presence. It's that life in you that will overcome the death of sin. And so he says over and over, 
We know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be rendered powerless so that we may no longer be enslaved to sin since a person who has died is freed from sin. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him because we know that Christ, having been raised from the dead, will not die again. Death no longer rules over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all time. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you too consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Paul's saying, you want to overcome the power of sin in your life? Lean into the resurrection of Jesus. You want to overcome sin in your life? Don't lean into the law. Don't act like it doesn't matter. Take your sin so seriously that you know you can't outperform it and instead lean into the resurrection of Jesus. Die to it. Let him overrule and overpower your sin. He goes on, Therefore do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its desires. And do not offer any parts of it to sin as weapons for unrighteousness. Paul says, don't let sin reign in your life. Your heart only has one throne. And Jesus can reign on it, or you can reign on it, but they can't both occupy it. Both sin and Jesus cannot occupy the throne of our hearts. Jesus will reign. And if Jesus reigns, sin cannot reign. If Jesus reigns, we can no longer live in rebellion against God. If Jesus reigns, then sin is rendered powerless in our lives to reign and rule over us. Now, I love that Paul uses the word reign because he's going to go on here in the book of Romans because he realizes at this point he's laying out a case that could very easily be read that if you follow Jesus and if you've been made alive in Jesus, you will never sin again. And Paul knows that's, that's actually not true. That's hogwash, right? If you are alive in Jesus, you will still fail. The Apostle John says in 1 John chapter 2, when we sin, we have an advocate with the Father. Not if. When we fall short, when we sin, we will. The difference is, is not in whether we occasionally commit sin or whether because we live in this broken world and in these, these sinful bodies we commit sin. The question is whether it will reign in us. Will it reign over us or will Jesus reign over us? And this is where the certainty and the absoluteness of Paul's language here is so helpful to us. Because he says, look, there, there's a lot of times he says throughout here, if you have died with Christ, then you will live with him. It is a certainty. If you are in Jesus, you will be alive to him and dead to sin. It is a certainty. This is a certainty that God has already put in place that you couldn't have made for yourself. This is a path that God has already paved for you. If you are in Christ, you will be like him. If you are a follower of Jesus and have his life living in you, sin will not reign in you. It will not sit on the throne of your heart. 
This is a rock-solid certainty because it does not rest on our effort or our attitudes. It rests on the sovereignty of our good and gracious God. It rests on the power of God, not on the power of you and me. And so if we want to be freed from sin, become like Jesus truly and fully, be remade into his image, let this life live within us, it is up to us to lean into the resurrection of Jesus, to lean into the resurrection life of him, to remember that his grace is sufficient for us. When we fail, we don't wallow, we don't lay in our filth, we don't just sit there and wait When we fail, we get up and we say, the grace of God is sufficient for me because of the resurrection of Jesus. I have failed, but like Peter, I will not be defined by my one failure. I am defined by the love of God in Jesus Christ poured out for me and the life that he has given me to overcome the death of my sinful nature. When we feel desires rise up within us, sinful desires, things that we know are against God's will and God's purpose, things that we know are harmful to others or harmful to ourselves, things that we know will undercut and undermine our witness to Jesus and his good news, we lean into the resurrection of Jesus and say, he has given me new life. We remind ourselves of the lengths that Jesus has gone to to free us from our sin and to give us new life in him. We remind ourselves that our God is not waiting up there to judge and strike us down when we fail, but that our God walked through the veil of death and pain and suffering to bring us life who didn't deserve it. We lean hard into the resurrection life of Jesus when we are tempted to fall. And when we do fall, we lean even harder into the resurrection life of Jesus and the grace of our good God. And that's the only place for the Christian to live. It's not a middle ground between antinomianism, my sin doesn't matter, and legalism, I have to earn my way. There isn't a middle road. This is a road that is infinitely higher and better than either of those ways. This is not a compromise between antinomianism and legalism. This is the way of Jesus that is higher and better than any way we could walk in our life. It is the way of Jesus that is a wholly different way of life than has been presented to us in any other venue in our lives. It's a wholly different way of life than has ever been handed to us by any other philosophy or religion or smart person. This is something new and better than anything we could have imagined or dreamed up for ourselves. And so today, if you're a follower of Jesus... You have the resurrection life of Jesus living in you. The same power that raised Jesus from the dead lives in you. And Jesus reigns on the throne of your heart. And when you inevitably fall, when you inevitably fail God's holy standard, you can stand up and say, your grace is sufficient for me and I am alive in Christ and I am not a slave to sin. And when you're doing really well and you're really faithful, you can stand up and say, I didn't earn it. I didn't make it. It is a gift of God, of the life that he's given me that I couldn't have gotten myself. 
And so you can't become a self-righteous jerk and you can't just wallow in your sin. You stand firm in the resurrection life of Jesus. You lean in to Jesus above all things. And if you're not a follower of Jesus today, then the first step to getting this life, to getting the resurrection life that Jesus has for you is to repent, to admit, Lord God, I am a sinner. I've tried to pave the way myself. I've tried to run things myself. I've rebelled against God, and I need the grace of Jesus. It's time to stop bargaining with God and saying, if you do this, I'll do that. It's time to stop ignoring God. It's time to turn your face to Jesus and say, Jesus, I want the life that only you can give. I want the grace and the gift that you came to give me. To repent of sin and turn to Jesus. And if you haven't, to be baptized and to proclaim the new life that he has given you. To proclaim, as Paul has declared in this passage, that we have died with Christ and we are now raised to new life in him. But no matter what, no matter where you are on your journey with Jesus, whether you haven't started following him yet, whether you've been following him a short time and you're still learning, whether you've been following him your whole life and you're still growing in relationship with him, no matter who you are today, the lesson here is this. Lean in to Jesus. Not to yourself or your own effort. Not to some program to try and fix you. Not to some philosophy that promises you the answers. Lean into the person of Jesus Christ who has given himself for you so that you can have new life in him. Jesus, would you draw us into you? Holy Spirit, draw us into relationship with our Lord, our King Jesus. Would you give us, Lord, the, the wherewithal to lean into your resurrection, both when we are failing and when we are succeeding. When we feel like we're a million miles from you and when we feel like we're sitting on your lap. Would you let us, Lord, would you give us the grace and the power to proclaim to a watching world when we fail that Jesus is my salvation and when we are succeeding that he gets all the credit to turn the attention away from ourselves and turn our eyes to Jesus. Jesus, you paid it all for us and you've given us new life and we thank you for that life. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Thanks for tuning into the podcast this week. For more information on Christ Community Church in Southeast Denver, visit ChristCommunityDenver.org.